I'm Glenn. And I'm Denny. This is part two of Project Failure. In part one, we were able to sort out the basic elements of a project and some real-world examples of failure. It's not an easy topic because our own experiences suggested that the subject is difficult to get your head around. You can come at this from many different angles. If nothing else, you should know that if you've been struggling with what seems like all too frequent failure in your job, you're not alone. Our experience and our research on this subject demonstrates there is an immense volume of opinions, materials, and no end of consulting companies wanting to help. But quite frankly, there is not one clear answer to project failure. As Denny has said more than once in this series, give him a position you'd like to take and he'll find the research to support it. What we can say for sure is that project failure is ubiquitous in corporate America and the public sector, which makes it an extremely important topic. I think we ended in the right spot in episode one to tee up this discussion. If you haven't listened to part one, you really should start there to appreciate what we're about to discuss. Briefly, we agreed on a couple of important truths about projects in episode one. First, a large percentage of projects fail. In fact, large projects fail to some significant degree across scope, budget, and or timeline at least 50% of the time on average. And of course, many organizations experience even higher rates. Some of us would say it feels like 90% of the time at the companies we work. Second, it's ill-advised to assume that a project you're working on won't have issues and obstacles that lead to failure. And yet this is usually the starting assumption, but we're telling you Assuming everything goes right on a project is simply foolish. Given all that, today's goal is simple. It's all related to the monitoring and controlling aspect of a project. And more specifically, we want to talk about signs that your project is going off the rails and ideally how to recover, or perhaps not recover and cut your losses. This list is potentially endless. So we also decided at the end of the last episode to limit our discussion to IT projects only to narrow the focus and keep it to less than 14 hours. Denny, are you still in agreement? That is, to wrangle this topic, this episode is about identifying signs of failure and limiting our discussion to just IT project. I am in agreement, Glenn, and let me just make a couple of comments about that. The reason we decided to go with IT only is that's really our area of expertise because that's the businesses that we've been involved in large. And the second thing is that as we talk about these things and as we focus on that kind of central part of monitoring the project as it's underway, I will most likely back up from time to time and point out what it was that got us to the position that we're at. And it's typically going to back up into the planning phase. Right. Okay, Denny, I'm going to start by giving you an example from our collective experience and then ask you to comment and discuss so first, an easy one. The first one is a sudden and unannounced vacation by a team member. I was part of a very small team of four people. There was one technical person involved. The developer on more than one occasion suddenly announced they were going on vacation. In fact, they were emailing us from their car while they were headed out of town on a Friday, explaining they were gone for the next week. Of course, he was generously offering to join that Friday call to discuss the project. And of course, this project took three times longer than hoped and delivered not much of anything valuable. So you want to know what I think about that? Yes. Sudden unannounced vacations. Something tells me that if I had been involved in this, I would have seen warning signs long before this guy got on the phone and said, I'll see you in a week. So let's just kind of 
bounce around on this one a little bit. For starters, I, I don't really hold the vacationing person totally responsible. Hmm. I mean, obviously, he's the one that threw the wrench in the spokes, but how in the world did his manager let this happen? How in the world is it that you could be part of a project team during the planning stage where you're putting together the schedule and all that, and one of your key members of that, you know he's going to be gone. If you don't know he's going to be gone, that's a failure of a different sort. That's a complete lack of interaction and, and planning and control of your team. Yeah, the manager was not on the project team, and the manager wanted to keep his employee happy. <laughs> well, all I can say is if you want to be sure that something is torpedoed, this sounds like a good approach to take. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? This this guy didn't report to any of us. Yeah, that's a common problem. I've often said that uh, the role of a project manager is that you have all of the responsibility and absolutely none of the authority. And this is the perfect example of that. If I was a project manager on this, the only thing I have control on is the documents that I produce and running the meetings and making sure that everybody's informed. But I don't have any ability to interact with any kind of authority with specific team members. That falls to their manager. My guess would be that the failure point in this was the idea that the manager of this person was not part of the project team, was not involved in it, was not part of the responsibility matrix, because this is clearly a, a guaranteed way to fail. As you said, you've got basically one developer. This is a person who's going to do all the coding and doesn't show up. You're going to make zero progress on day one. You're going to make zero progress on week one. You're already in the hole. It's just, it's a complete, uh, I'm trying to think of polite words to use. <laughs> it's really, it's messed up. And I can see why this failed. And it should be immediately apparent to everybody that was involved in it. The minute you got that phone call, we're doomed. So the only thing you could do in a case like that is completely reset. Go back and reset your dates. We're not starting today. We're not starting for another week until this person is back. But this is a clear case of absolute incompetent prior planning to have allowed this to happen and to catch you completely off guard. That's almost mind boggling. I'm not saying it doesn't happen to all of us. I'm not saying we haven't had these events, but for me personally, one of the things that I would do as I'm looking to put the resource schedule together and the resource schedule includes people, I'd make sure that I know who has vacation scheduled. I'd make sure that I factored in some component for the unexpected, like sick time. People do have things that come up in their lives, so you have to modify your expectation. It seems like in this case, none of that was done. So I understand why this one failed. That's a good point. So right up front, you're getting vacations out on the table, setting it up. Like That seems like a, a job of the project manager. I think what you're also saying is that you've got to involve the managers of people to some degree managers of the resources to make sure that everyone's in agreement of the level of commitment. But let's say this happened, because just to clarify one thing, it wasn't a phone call. It was an email <laughs> as he was headed out of town. So what what do you do? Are you as a project manager or as one of the three other people in this project, what are you doing to get this back on the track? So you can't get this back on track. You're going to have to okay. reset. There's no other option. I would be a very irate project manager calling this guy's boss and saying, what the heck? So I'm going to assume that the way I come into this is that I show up on the day that this happens, because I would have never let this take place in a project that I was involved in. I would have refused to allow it to get underway if we didn't have full participation. 
And when you're doing your resource planning, we'll talk about this later. I have a whole bunch of formulas that I use in order to determine how much time is actually available. So it includes vacation, but there are these predictions for other things that are going to happen. We'll, we'll discuss that in more detail later. But you're not going to get this project back on track. You're going to have to reset the dates. The results of that, I can't say because it would depend on the specific project. If you have a customer deliverable date, you're not going to make it. So you're going to have to let them know right away you had a problem. You're going to be a, a week late. And I would say at least a week late, mm -hmm. probably longer, because you're now going to have to kind of go back and reset some of the interaction within the team. The fact that you've got this guy who has a manager that has no part in the project is a very, very dangerous sign. It seems to me that that's a good way for future problems to develop. So your project team has to include the actual people that are doing the work and some sort of an oversight. Somebody on their management chain of command has to be involved too. This goes all the way to the top. It's back to your sponsor. It's back to the idea that you've got somebody who's making the decisions. Everyone in that line, from the CEO down to the guy who's testing the code, all has to be on board. And in this case, clearly that didn't happen. A good example of project guaranteed to fail. Okay, example number two, still staying with that sort of project initiation. Expectations are somehow set above anything anyone ever said could be done. For example, deliver this project by this date with this scope. This often comes into play when you're dealing with some aggressive executive that wants to inspire some kind of extraordinary effort. Kind of that failure is not an option nonsense. But unless you're Elon Musk, this usually does the opposite. One particular project I'm thinking of, the solution offered by the executive to achieving this really difficult goal was to work in parallel, which of course I immediately started making fun of. But it means to do two things at once, to get an extraordinary effort done. This project really failed right from the start, but we were moving really fast. So in that situation, you've got an executive telling you this project needs to be done by this date with this scope, go. This is a, a lack of organization, a lack of a plan. You know, if you go out and just Google why do projects fail, you, you kind of get the same six or seven or eight reasons. And it very often comes back to these exact kinds of things. And that is that you don't have the right people on the project team to make the decisions. And this is another example of a lack of upfront organizational planning. If you have not defined the objective of the project in very clear and agreed upon terms, how are you supposed to hit that objective? And the answer is you won't. What you're describing to me here is that there is some sort of a vague understanding of what it is that you're going to do, some sort of unclear expectation of what's going to come out the other end. And that's pretty much what you end up with, something vague and unexpected, but rarely what you thought you were going to go for. I cannot stress enough the importance of setting some clearly defined boundaries at the outset. If you don't know where you're trying to get to, you're never going to get there. Let me just give you an analogy to this that uh, kind of helped me understand why this is important. Let's say that my project, is, I'm going to lose weight. That's my project. Well, there's no parameters around that. So what does that mean? I say, my project, lose weight. Okay, well, I'm going to clarify it. I'm going to lose 15 pounds. Well, still, okay, how and, and when? Well, all right, I'm getting a little closer. And then I say, all right, I'm going to lose 15 pounds in four months. Now I have a stated objective and a timeline to go with it. I'm getting closer to making a definition 
that I can achieve based on the expectations that I've set. And the description of what you've got here has none of that. It's like, well, what we're going to do is this magnificent thing that's going to make us the most famous company in the world and all of our customers are going to go nuts and buy 10 of everything we sell. Go do it. Impossible to achieve. It's impossible to achieve an objective when you don't have an objective clearly defined, clearly agreed upon. Again, this is a description from what you've told me of exactly that kind of scenario, that there was an idea that was promoted by someone in charge, but there was no control around developing this or putting a plan together. Guaranteed to fail. Sounds like it did. In this case, it certainly did. The follow-on question then is, what if you do have a clear objective? What if you do have things broken down and then in swoops the executive to say, this looks great. Now do it in half the time or do it in three quarters of the time. Not like I haven't been there before. (laughs) I'm going to go back to the three legs of a project. And that is, you've got to have a timeline. Sounds like your timeline has just been half. And then you have to have the budget. And the budget includes not just the dollars and cents, but all the component parts. My original plan said it's going to take 10 people six months. And the executive says, I want it done in three months. Well, top of my head, I'm going to say I need now 20 people. So you've got to be able to make those adjustments. These are real world problems that come up that you really do have to face from time to time. That's usually not easy because where are you going to find those 10 people are already doing something else. Then you get into this whole mess of trying to prioritize which project is most important. If I win and my project is most important, then I get to go snatch 10 people from some other project and then they've got their own problems to deal with. But those are things that you can find solutions for. The determination is made that the delivery time must be had for a justifiable reason. And if that determination is supported by the executive and the sponsor, and if you are given the authority to obtain the necessary resources, you can get back on track. If none of those things are true, If you're just mandated to do it in half the time, it's just a physical impossibility. It would be exactly like you saying, I have a contract to build a house over the next 12 months. And you suddenly say, nope, it's going to be done in six months, same amount of money, get it done. Will not happen Mm -hmm. because you cannot complete that volume of work without adding more resource to it. You were put into a position here where, once again, you're guaranteed to fail because you were not allowed to make those adjustments. So I'm hearing you have to kind of restart that whole project plan, rejigger everything, revisit it, and you can't allow the executive to shortcut that. It's got to be reset. Yeah. Easy to say, sometimes hard to do. Okay. Number three, here we go. The weekly or biweekly project team meetings are poorly attended. You can almost feel it. A project loses momentum. People start to lose interest. And it's one of the worst things because the members of the team start putting other things at a higher priority in their day. I have many experiences with this, but the project I'm thinking of, the project manager was finding it difficult to get people to follow up with their items that they were supposed to complete. And it was just a constant letdown where week in and week out, we were sort of saying, well, no, we didn't get that done. We'll work on it next week or it's half done or it's almost done until the project just kind of faded away. Well, a sad but very familiar story for me. So so what you've uncovered in this particular topic is the need to probably do kind of a quick top to bottom on on how this whole project thing should work. I'll attempt to avoid getting too deep in the weeds on any one of these topics, but what you're uncovering here is a symptom of a very poorly constructed and very poorly managed project. Step one. We've already talked about this, and that is that at the beginning, when the project is first 
just a gleam in the eye of someone. And it, it constitutes an idea for maybe a new product or a new service, something that can make money for the company that's in line with what the company does, all the right reasons for doing this. There's a whole lot of legwork that is done up front to determine, one, is it feasible? And two, what do we think it's going to take to do this in terms of time and money? This really high level first coat of paint that you put on this. And if you do not have buy-in at that point, the project never takes off. That's kind of an easy distinction to make. We've got this idea to build this new thing, but nobody seems really that enthused about it. Let's just bag it and move on. The other side of that is that I've got this new thing to build. Everybody is excited. Let's put together more details. But the second round of details still does not get deep enough in the weeds to firmly guarantee the outcome. But it does help to define specifics around what it is that you're intending to do to the degree that you can make an initial plan. When you say weekly or biweekly meetings, I immediately think I'm way early in the process because if I've got something going on that's in active development, there better be meetings happening every day. There has to be this constant, I've mentioned this before, repetitive focus on where are we? What's going on? What's not making it? What's being done? What's done early? What are we going to have to add? What are we going to have to take off? That doesn't happen at a weekly or biweekly meeting. So that's not where the failure is going to occur in those. If you're only getting together every couple of weeks, that's just kind of a status review. That's probably going to involve people that are not directly involved with the day-to-day -day project. They're going to be a lot less involved in this. They're going to have a lot less skin in the game. They're probably not going to help you move things ahead. It's more like, I want to make sure you know what we're up to. I like that. I think daily meetings are an important part of a successful project. The, the word that you use in here that we want to focus on is momentum. And the momentum is not going to happen from meetings that are at that level, that are that far apart. The momentum is going to happen with the people who are really down there pounding the nails, or in our case, writing the code. It's that day-to-day, -day, or more correctly, hour-to-hour -hour work that is being done by actual people producing. That's where the momentum is going to take place, or not. Let's say you've got a, a team of a few engineers, and they've got, let's say there's six of them, and they've got six different components that they're working on. On, and they're furiously coding. And there's this more or less constant interaction between them and probably someone in product, probably someone in implementation. They may be talking to the data architects. They may be talking to the operations people. All of this stuff at a very basic level. And the momentum takes place there. Even if you talk to your sponsor, who is kind of that first executive level of authority, they're not going to have that same impact. They're going to be able to make the big decisions when you can't get them done otherwise. They're going to be the ones that can fork over more money or more people if you need them. But momentum is not in their purview. Momentum has to happen at the project team level, the people that are actually doing the work. The description of what you're telling me here is the awareness that comes to the people that are well above that day-to-day -day activity who suddenly see things are falling apart and the momentum starts to falter. It invariably happens at that individual level. This is going to be the engineering, the engineering managers, the project manager, the people that are actually involved in the literally the minute to minute activity. That makes perfect sense. And I think if you are seeing that and you're starting to see people get unengaged and you're not doing daily meetings, the change that needs to happen is daily meetings. Why not? The fact that you've described this to me tells me that in this case, when you experienced this, you were at a level where you were 
disengaged from that minute to minute activity, which means you need to start kicking some butt in order to get that activity back underway. So the fault does not lie with the people that are in these weekly project meetings. These are just kind of status meetings. This is what's going on. These are the things that are green. These are the things that are red, that sort of stuff. But as soon as you start to see things go yellow or red, you need to start talking to the people that report to you and say, what's going on? Why is this not happening? And you need to push that downhill to the people that are doing the work. You may uncover other problems that we would want to discuss in a different context. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like you're seeing the results of a very poorly run project team at the worker level. Yeah, I think there's an assumption, hey, we're all adults here, just give me my list for the week, I'll make sure it gets done, that sort of thing. But to your point, everyone's busy, everyone's got other priorities, other things going on, other distractions, you need a daily check-in to keep your project moving with the right momentum. So that makes perfect sense. You mentioned project sponsor in your answer. So here's the next one. No project sponsor or an ineffective project sponsor, an unengaged project sponsor, I was part of a project that supposedly was, if not the number one priority of the company, it was in the top three. But the project sponsor didn't show up for any of the project status reviews, which again was more like a bi-weekly type meeting. It was because they were busy, they were traveling, they had other priorities, but they were generally not engaged really at any level. I even saw at times a project manager who was very aware of the challenge that this was presenting, was actually chasing this guy down in the halls in an almost comical way. And this guy did everything to just sort of walk around him and avoid him. And obviously, this project failed, didn't produce the results. I've been there. And uh, (laughs) all I can do is kind of chuckle about this, because this represents two things. One is, if you're going to have success in project management in an organization, Everybody has to be on the team. The best analogy that I could think of would be you're an NFL football team and your coach doesn't really care. The coach doesn't show up for practice. The coach is uninvolved. He's looking at his phone on the sidelines during the game. That's what you're describing. One of the most important things that happens in any project up front is involvement of a sponsor. Someone in the organization with a lot of authority, someone that has managerial authority over nearly everyone that's going to be on the project team, in order to issue orders to that project team, that person has to be in a position where they have the ability to do that. In other words, if I'm the sponsor, let's say I'm at a VP level, and I've got three directors that report to me who have six managers that report to them that have 40 engineering types that report to them. But I have the authority to affect the life of every single one of those people at the lower end of that work chart. If I don't have that, I'm a terrible sponsor because I can't put any pressure on them. I can't effectively say, you're not doing your job. You're putting your position with this company in peril. Get off your ass and get busy. You pick a sponsor that is completely unable to exert any pressure, any control, you're likely to run into these kinds of things. If you're selecting a sponsor simply so you can fill out a form that says, here's the sponsor, that's not a good way to start. Sponsor has to be Number one, in agreement that what you're doing is worthwhile. And number two, and probably more importantly, able to put pressure on when it's needed. What you're describing to me here is a really bad selection of a sponsor. I have personal experience working with good and bad. I had some sponsors when I was working for a university hospital 
They were absolutely outstanding. And I spoke with them personally at least once a week, giving them status reports. And if I needed something, I got it. I've had other sponsors that were like the description that you had here. That was fairly early in my career before I figured out how important this was. If you have this sort of a situation, you have a very high probability of a failure of the project because things will come up. You'll have an employee, let's say an engineer, who's not doing the job for whatever reason. You go to that employee's manager and that manager can't get any traction with that. And you go to the director that that employee reports to and the director can't get any traction. Sometimes you have to go up. Probably a better example is you suddenly have need of additional assistance. So let's say your project team consists of one of the manager chains of command under this director, under this VP who's a sponsor, and they realize they need help. There's either some sort of cross-dependency with products that the other team controls, or there's a need for maybe some technical expertise that only exists on another team. And you go to that manager and that manager says, nope, can't spare this guy have too many other important things going on. You keep going up the chain until you get satisfaction. You've got to have that ability to go uphill when you need it. If you don't have any support and you've gotten to the point that you need that level of support, your hands are tied. You're, you're going to see the project fail. It works both ways. You have to have a good sponsor, but you hopefully never need to drag that individual in because you manage things at a lower level. I like that. So an effective sponsor on a project is proactive, is engaged, it knows what's going on, but at the same time doesn't necessarily get involved unless they're needed. But let's say you're either the project manager or you're just a stakeholder, just a victim of this project that's going off the rails because of the sponsor and the lack of effort there. What do you do? I would immediately escalate and make a bunch of noise. And then it's up to you personally to decide how hard you push on that. Let's say that I'm at the, the worker level so I'm a software engineer, and I realize I have got to get help from Ed on this other team because Ed is the only person that understands the API that I'm trying to connect to. So I go to my boss and I say, I need, I need to get Ed. I need him for a week to help. So your boss goes to the other guy's boss and the other guy's boss says, no. Well, all I can do is go to the project manager and say, we're, we're going to crash and burn. Then it's the project manager's responsibility to start escalating things up the chain. And some of this is going to depend on individual organizations, who reports to whom, who has great relationships with whom. I think I mentioned in one of our earlier discussions about this, that a great deal of being a good project manager is interpersonal relations, the ability to talk to other people, the ability to emphasize with their situation, and yet to still achieve objectives. A lot of that interpersonal communication is the key to getting all this stuff done. I, I know you're in a bind and I realize you've got a project that's going to be impacted, but turns out ours is number one on the list. Yours is number four. Turns out ours is due in three weeks. Yours is done in five. There may be something we can do to kind of help backfill you in a week, but we need this guy right now today. That, that kind of stuff where you do some politicking and you look for assistance and you try and shift a few resources if necessary. That's just business goes on every day, right? You've got to do these kinds of things. One of the things that I mentioned is that very early on, probably the most important thing you do on day one is find that sponsor. And yet this is why, because you've got to have that thumb on the scale when you need it. And without that, 
you run into exactly these kinds of situations. The first document that should be produced when you create a project is the charter. And the charter states a bunch of things. This is what we're going to do. This is who we're going to do it with. This is what's going to come out of it. This is the point. And this is the sponsor. That's a named individual on day one who sort of assumes top level responsibility for everything that's going to happen. If you don't have that, it's like, like I said, it's a football team without a coach. What I'm also hearing is that you have to have a good relationship with that sponsor because you can have a charter, you can have the documents, you can have everything in place. But if somehow you aren't able to communicate and have a good productive conversation with that sponsor to get them involved at the right times, that's just another way to fail. Relationship between the sponsor and the project manager. Relationship between the sponsor and their direct report and right on down the chain. If you can't deal with these folks in a positive, constructive way, you're going to have problems. So if you've got a particular individual that just can't get along with anybody, that's going to be a problem. If you've got an individual that can only get along with one person, that's not a problem as long as you can insert that one person. It's all about human interaction to make this stuff work. Everybody has to be on board. Everybody has to be paddling in the same direction. That's kind of what it comes down to. All right. Here's a follow-up question related to what you just said. Oftentimes when you're dealing with important people, there is a lot of pressure to pretend like everything is going great. You have an executive that has a reputation and the last thing they want is to hear that their project is red or is failing or is whatever. How does a project team deal with something like that? My wife is in the IT business and she uh, has been working for a company for several years now. And the guy who was her immediate supervisor used to say to her, and she said this to me many times, and I think it answers your question. Austin used to say, if you're not willing to get fired from your job, you're not doing your job. Hmm. So what you just said to me is, there are a bunch of yes people out there. They're afraid to deliver bad news. We all know this. We've all seen it. We've probably all been guilty of it. If you do not bring the bad news to the people that can solve the problem, you are not doing your job. If your approach is, I'm only ever going to tell this guy good things, you're going to fail. You're undermining your own efforts. Now, there may be consequences because you might be working for somebody that simply doesn't want to hear bad news because that's the approach they take. Bad news, you're out of here. I think you simply have to take the attitude that I'm going to tell the truth to the people that need to hear the truth 100% of the time. And if they can't deal with that, I'm probably working in the wrong organization. Kind of a cold-blooded view, but I think it's absolutely true. And it's particularly true in this. If you're not telling people all of the facts all of the time, you're not helping things move ahead. Now, you may suffer from that because you may run into somebody that doesn't want to get the bad news. But then my counter to that is you shouldn't be working for those kind of folks anyway. You want to be a successful person in whatever kind of work it is that you're doing. And the best way to do that is state the facts. This is what's happening. This is the only way we're going to solve it. I realize it looks bad. There's probably a way that we can solve this, but you got to know we're in desperate shape. I like the way you said that too, that you've got to just state the facts because there are bad ways to deliver bad news. So you've got to be cognizant again of that interpersonal reaction, how you're being taken by certain people, especially if they're especially high up. All right. You ready for a tough one? Hit me. The team says they're following Scrum Agile development, but they're not, and they don't want to, but they say they are. So this one's a little bit weird. I run into this on more than one occasion, but it's true. Many groups of developers just want to code, 
but they know they're supposed to pretend like they're following some process, but they justify it because agile means no rules. Nothing is ever delivered on time. Some things never finish. There's no accountability. Usually projects just kind of peter out. Hmm. Agile is chock full of rules. There you go. Agile is highly structured, highly visible, highly effective. So the fact that you say you're doing something, well, if you're not doing it, you're not doing it. What do you do in that situation? As a stakeholder or a project manager, all you can do is alert the authorities to what's going on. I think the key to this is there should be some understanding somewhere about how you actually do agile development of what's involved and the people that are involved and what their roles are. And this may be a topic for a a subsequent discussion because I got a ton of experience in this and a lot of comments to make about how it works. And it does work. But this is a situation where you simply have, I don't know how else to describe it, you have an incompetent development staff. And that could be the specific engineers, but more likely it's their supervisor because that's who should be controlling the process. I've been an engineer. I've I've been a manager of engineers. I've been a project manager. So I've kind of seen this from all levels. But I know for a fact from experience that the responsibility for this problem that you're describing lies with the manager of the engineering staff. They are not doing it right. Who that is, what level that is, will depend on the organization. It may be it's just a position where you're the technical project lead of a team. It may be that you're actually the manager, meaning you have HR and project responsibilities. It might mean that you're a director of a group of developers, and any one of those levels can take control of the activity. But that was not happening in this case. There are very concrete steps that you go through if you're going to do agile developments, very, very, very clearly defined. There's some flexibility, but it's not like there aren't rules that say step one, step two, step three, there are. Agile is not a universe of no rules. And when someone says that, they clearly don't know what they're doing. So if an engineer says that, it means that their manager doesn't know what they're doing. And most likely the director is unaware of what they're doing or doesn't know what they're doing. That's a systemic problem and discussion. What can you do? The same thing you can do in every case, and that's try and run it up the chain and get help. Because you as a stakeholder, you as a project manager, in nearly every case, have no authority to really change anything. All you can do is yell. Make sure that people know this is a problem. This is the nature of the problem. We need to stop this and fix it. Are there some clear signs that, hey, You say you're doing agile development, but I'm not seeing evidence of that. Is there anything you should be watching for to see that their agile development methodology isn't being applied effectively? Uh, Yeah, several things. And one thing that I want to say up front about agile is that in sort of a standard universe, you have kind of two sides to the equation. You've got the, the product side or the customer side, the people in the organization who say, this is what the customer wants. And then you've got the engineering side who are actually building whatever it is. That is kind of by definition, a conflict-based relationship. The product people will always ask for more than they can get. They will always ask for a shorter timeline than you can achieve. It's just the nature of the business. The engineering side will always say, no, that's too much or next phase. 
you have to accept that that's the nature of the relationship that you're going to be dealing with. This is step one. Denny's view of how agile should work. Product comes up with a list of things that they want to be able to deliver to the customer. In this list of things should be, at some level, some functional requirements, some user requirements. This is what the customer should see. To use my typical example, you're going to have a screen that displays on your computer and it has the following fields that you enter and the following fields that display, sort of the functional requirement. You enter this stuff and something happens. They hand this off to some sort of an engineering management person. It could be anywhere from a, a VP to a technical project lead. But regardless of that individual, they have the responsibility of taking those functional requirements and obtaining some sort of a very high level, level of effort estimate. The best way that I know to do this is I get these 10 items from product and I go to my engineering staff and I tell them to tell me how long it will take them to accomplish this based on what little they know at that moment. But instead of saying, tell me how many hours it's going to take you, I ask them to take these functional requirements delivered to me by product and give me a level of effort estimate that spans a range of sprints. So if a standard sprint is two weeks and I give this particular requirement to an engineer, they don't know a lot about it and they won't spend a huge amount of time figuring it out because I just want to, I want to range. Can you do this in one to two sprints or is it going to take you three to four to five Break it down that way. So then I have this very high level estimate for each of these 10 functional requirements that I've got. I can then convert that into project hours based on the number of hours that are available within each sprint. Now, here's a key point within that. Let's assume for the sake of argument that a week is 40 hours, that your engineering staff is going to work 40 hours per week. We all know that that's rarely true. It's much more than that, but for the purposes of this discussion. So I take that 40 hours and I multiply it by two because that's one sprint. So I've got 80 hours. I immediately subtract 20%. 20% off because the phone rings, you get emails, you got to go get coffee. Somebody walks in and asks you a question, those kinds of normal interruptions that you get. So you've reduced your 80 hours by 20%. I then go to that engineer and do what you didn't do in your very first example and say, over the next three months, what are your vacation plans? I need to know what time off you have. I factor that in and I subtract that as appropriate from each of these sprints. I then look at the individual that's giving me this level of effort and I think, okay, what else does this person do? Well, turns out once a month, she's on call for production support for an entire week. Well, I have to subtract some component of time based on production support calls that I know are going to come in. Then the last thing that I deduct is business as usual. Stuff just happens. Things that you have to respond to just to keep the lights on. Now, I know this is a fact because I've been in this business for 30 plus years. You cannot go through a week and not be interrupted with some sort of an unexpected event. So anyway, what I get out of that is I don't get 40 hours a week. I get something more like 30, we'll say. Then I take each sprint and I've now got 60 hours of available work time for each engineer. So I start with that. What that does is that gives me a number against which I can weigh the number of things product has brought to me 
and say they've given me 10 things and there's a thousand hours, but when I go look at my staff, the available production hours that I have right now are, are only 600. So then I go back to product and I say, in this period of time, whatever this project time is, whether it's an individual project over three months or whether it's done by quarter, however you break it down, this is how much time I have available. This is how much stuff you're asking me to do. You need to prioritize these things and we'll get to what we get to on the list. That becomes our project. What that does is it takes this big chunk of you'll never get this done stuff delivered by product and it converts it into a very high level view of this is probably what we can get done in this same period of time. It's a very realistic estimate and it includes things like vacations, production support, the unexpected, the standard day-to-day interruptions of life. Once we start working on it, once an engineer actually picks up one of these tasks and the engineer has said, I should be able to do this in two sprints, four weeks, they start digging into that. They get into the real technical meat of it and they say, oh, this is only going to take me five days because I didn't know all this stuff when I first looked at it. So I now have an extra piece of time available for that engineer. I can go back to product and say, I have capacity to take on another thing. The other side of that is the engineer says, oh my God, this is going to take me 10 weeks. It's way more complicated. I go back to product and I say, you're going to have to take something off. That's what I mean by this built-in conflict between these two organizations. Product's going to say, you said you could do all this. Engineer's going to say, nope, turns out we can't. If you don't have that flexibility, if you don't have the ability for engineering to push back and you don't have the agreement by product just to be realistic, you're going to have problems. That's relationships. That's just stuff you've got to learn to do. And what it does is it means there's a first very high level pass. Yeah, this looks like it's you know this big. A very detailed second pass. Well, it's not really that big. It's this big. And you get to prune down the effort estimates to the point that they're pretty good. Key point, once you hand that task to an engineer and they say, this is what it's really going to take, they've committed themselves. They're going to do it. Even if they're wrong, they're going to do it. And they're going to deliver it within the time frame that they said they were going to deliver it. And if that means nights and weekends, too bad. So part of what happens is you train your engineering staff to be very diligent about what they're doing in terms of estimates. First pass through high level, let's just get some numbers on paper. Second pass through, what you're telling me, you're committed to do. So don't now say, oh, I got to go on vacation. No, that's BS. It's not happening. You said you could do this in two weeks. I want it done in two weeks. Again, this all comes down to relationships, communication, skilled management, that sort of thing. That's an excellent overview of the types of things that you should be seeing in Agile. So if you're the project manager or you're a stakeholder in a project, you should be seeing an effort to break work it down into sprints, those two-week chunks of work. You should be seeing some level of conflict and resolution. I've certainly seen projects go awry simply because the product or the business analyst or the people asking for things and the engineering team can't get aligned on what it's even possible, let alone what it is a customer wants. And then finally, you're seeing adjustments made all along the way as people figure out what's hard, what's easy, what took longer, what took less, at the same time knowing that people are committing to delivering things. Would you say if you're not seeing those elements happening, the project is likely going to go awry? Well, it's certainly more likely to go awry. It will depend on the degree of difficulty. But if you have a, a complex project and you don't do these kinds of things, 
you're, you're going to see problems. Might be important to point out here too, that I think there's a kind of a generic misconception of the project manager. The things that I just described are not things a project manager would do mm-hmm. for the simple reason. Well, there's two. One, most project managers don't have that level of expertise. They don't understand the details of engineering. Most project managers are not engineers. I was fortunate in that I had a strong engineering background. I could conceptualize what needed to happen. But even as a project manager with a strong engineering background, I've got no ability to say to the engineers, you will do this or else. So if you tell me two weeks, by God, it'll be done in two weeks. I didn't have that authority. You've got to have people in the management staff who are managing the engineer, whoever they are, that have the ability to drill into that level of detail. The project manager then is responsible for making sure the universe knows what's going on. Let's report back on this. It helps to to have enough technical savvy to understand what they're talking about. But they're the ones that are maintaining a schedule. They're the ones that are maintaining the issues list. They're the ones that are maintaining the, the risk assessments and that sort of thing. PM is the one that's passing all this information around. But what I just described is this conflict between engineering staff and their manager and product, whoever the customer service folks are, whatever you call those in your organization. Because that contact point between those two groups is where, like they say, the rubber meets the road. Because that's where the decisions are made about what happened, about how long it's going to take. So you have to have strong people in both of those organizations who both understand. Sometimes they don't get what they want. Engineering doesn't decide the priority, but they do decide how long it's going to take and how to go about it. Product doesn't get to decide how to build it, but they do get to decide what's the most important thing to build. So it's coming to grips with those kinds of uh, touch points between the organization. Yeah, and it sounds like because of your background, you intuitively knew when an engineering and a product teams weren't doing what they were supposed to do. So it behooves everyone else on a project to also at least be somewhat aware of the steps they should be seeing. For example, I've certainly done this in meetings. Do we have a backlog for the upcoming sprints? Because that suggests that you've taken the work and broken it down into chunks. And if the answer is, no, we don't really have a backlog. We only know what we're going to do in the next sprint. That's a sure sign that things are going sideways. Yeah. The other thing I didn't mention, because I keep trying to not get too deep into this, is the current phrase that is like to be used is tech debt. Mm -hmm. So that's technical issues that you know about that either constitute stuff that you didn't get done before or... There are things that you need to do just to the structure of the code that you're working in, things that will make life better. There needs to be a component of that included in every one of these project cycles because you got people working in that area of the code. If you've got some sort of, I don't know, some sort of a, a sort that's taking place in there that's very inefficient, but that's not what you're trying to change, and yet you're driving right by it when you're changing the code, you should include that tech debt fix as a component of the work that you're in there. You've already got the code, you've checked it out, you're modifying it, you're testing it. So you include those things too. Again, it's it's that level of detail that most people don't need to be concerned with. It has to reside within the engineering division, that group of people that's actually doing it. They need to decide what they work on and how much time is available realistically. And the only thing that they need help with is what is the most important thing that you want me to do? Because I'll do that first and away you go. The way projects fail is none of this happens or part of it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's no communication. There's a disagreement about who gets to decide what. But that to me is sort of, that's the touch point between success and failure. And failure, of course, is however you want to define it. But if you don't have strong people 
that are making the decisions about the actual work that's being done, you're likely to have problems. It's probably more about that than it is about how hard it is or how big it is or how invasive it is. If you've got skilled people that know how to organize their work and how to maneuver through the interpersonal relations between the different departments, you stand a pretty good chance of succeeding. Okay. So I think we've hit this pretty well. I just want to make sure that we emphasize the point that everyone on the project team can see obvious signs of a product and an engineering team not being effective simply because they have a basic understanding. If the team says they're doing agile development, there should be signs of that. And if you're not seeing signs of that, which is a lot of the time, either they're not effectively communicating or working through conflicts that are arising, or they're not actually breaking down the work. And again, this isn't the project manager's responsibility, but certainly a project manager knowing what agile looks like should be able to see evidence that those things are actually happening. And if there isn't commitment happening, and if there isn't some kind of consequence, if things aren't met, or if there's even a expectation that we're going to always get 100% things done all the time, then that's probably all an indication that the project is at risk. Expectations are too high or procedures and processes aren't being followed, which will inevitably lead to things not meeting expectations. Okay. How about we move on to the next thing, which you can have all that in place. You can be clearly doing all the good things. And then along comes changing priorities. I know you've been part of this project phenomenon, but it goes something like this. We spent so long trying to get something done and we're late. Sometimes this isn't even true that the execs have shifted focus. So let's shift to this thing over here so that we can show some kind of progress or value sooner rather than later. Yeah. So I'm going to comment on that. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? You're in a project, in comes an exec, we're changing course. Well, I think in a case like that, there's probably not a lot you can do because the people that have the authority to determine what you're going to work on have just said, this is what you're going to work on. What it doesn't address is the absolute frustration that that causes to the team. As people invest a lot of themselves in doing this work. And if you suddenly see it parked to the side, it's frustrating. There's a bigger issue with that that I think is often overlooked. And that is, let's assume this happens. And then eventually, whatever this new bright, shiny object is, you finish that and you're told to go back and restart and complete what you started before. Exactly. That original project is now going to take a lot longer because you've lost context of what it is that you were doing. This is a, a problem that appears in every engineering task I've ever been involved in. And that is that the stuff sometimes is really, it's hard. It's complicated. The best way to describe it is if I go back to way back when I first started as an engineer, technology was very different in those days. And one of the things that you had to do was you had to get a program listing, an actual printout of the code because you, you didn't have the ability to really conveniently look at it online. So you'd print these things on this big, giant green bar paper that was like 18 inches wide, huge chunk. And programs in those days were all big monolithic kinds of things. So you'd get a 150-page program listing, and you'd have a problem you were trying to sort out. And in order to do that, you'd wander through the code until you found some key point. And I would have this listing opened up and I'd stick my finger in that place and then continue until I got to another key point. And it was not uncommon where I'd have four fingers shoved into different places in the listing. You know, you could use the little stickies to mark it, but it's like you've got this thought process going and you want to be able to flip back and forth. 
what was the definition of that variable? Oh, here it is. Is that the same thing? How, how big was it? How many bytes is it? That kind of thing. And then somebody would walk into your office and ask you a question. And in order to respond, you would take your fingers out of the listing. and You've now lost all context. This happened a thousand times. That's the same analogy to what you're describing is I've got this complicated piece of work. Every part of my brain is engaged in solving this problem. And now I'm told, yeah, just park that. We got a new thing for you to do. When you go back to that, it's going to take a significant amount of time to get back to where you were. You've been working on something for two weeks. Now you go off and for a month, you do something completely different. You go back. You're not going to be able to get to the same place in the same amount of time. You're going to have to rebuild everything that you knew all of the chain of events to get back to where you were. It's an immediate impact. Not only have you temporarily derailed the project, but you've added now time to it because it will take longer because of that interrupt. This applies to any kind of interruption at any point in the life of an engineer. If somebody walks in, you're going to lose context and you're going to have to back up and start over. The problem that you described, though, is not one that's easy to solve because if it comes from the top, what are you going to do? I mean, you could apply my always tell them the truth mantra, but if you go to the CEO, by the way, I know this one from personal experience because I have actually done that. Uh, you frequently lose your job. So <laughs> that's happened. I took issue with an approach that was taken and I ended up in the CEO's office discussing it. And then mysteriously, some weeks later, I was no longer with that firm. There are consequences. For what it's worth, I've never felt bad about that because I think that I, I know I did the right thing, but I think that there was a positive outcome. You got to be willing to say the right thing because the truth is, in the case you described in your scenario, the people that are being most impacted actually know more about what's going on than the person that's come in and said, hey, new plan. Ultimately, you just have to react. If the boss tells you to do something, that's who's signing your paycheck. You know, that's probably what you should do. If that's what they want you working on, that's a decision that's kind of outside your purview. Smaller, lower level, there there may be times when stuff like this comes up when you find yourself being redirected and it's it's uh, to the company's advantage to not do that. Maybe we're really close. Another week and we're done. So delay your new bright, shiny object idea for a week. And sometimes that would be the right thing to do. It does sound like you're emphasizing the need to communicate, have those interpersonal relationships available to you so that you can effectively share the impact. So the yeah. answer might be, well, give us two more weeks and we can be there. Or it makes sense to do this, but just know when you come back to this project, it's going to add 30% to the timeline. Yeah. And as you described that, I'm also thinking of a couple of instances in, in my own experience where there was a production problem that surfaced that was high impact and you had to stop what you were doing and go and address that. That's a legitimate shift. It costs you in the long run, but there's very little question of the priority when you have production processes interrupted. In our case, it was healthcare. So there was potential physical human harm at stake. You have to change directions and could do that. Sometimes that happens and that's the right thing to do, but just on a whim, doesn't seem like the best decision. All right. Now I'm going to give you three different topics. This is sort of a rapid fire thing because I have a feeling you're going to point back to existing things we've already discussed. It's probably worth mentioning them just to bring everyone back to those foundational concepts. You ready? Fire away. Project status reports float into the ether. There's no discussion. No matter what it says, good, bad, indifferent, it just literally no comment is made. Well, you have a very disengaged project team, would be my guess. Maybe the only way to address this is 
at one of your early sessions, there is a stated and agreed upon process. When I send this status report, acknowledge that you've gotten it. It's not the same as saying you've read it and you understand and you agree, but at least mm-hmm. you have acknowledged that it's out there. What that does is it puts the onus on you. So if I send out to 10 people and all 10 of them respond and the next day somebody comes and says, you didn't tell me anything about that, or what do you mean this is what's happening? You can say, hey, you acknowledge the status report. This one's on you. It would at least establish responsibility and accountability. In your experience, have you been in meetings, project status meetings, where people are sitting around a table or virtually and the same thing happens? You give a project status update and there's no comment? No discussion, no nothing. And not only that, but sometimes those people have their laptops in there and they're working on something else. Yeah. It's kind of the disinvolved, disassociation sort of thing. This, I, I think all this, again, sort of comes back to that interpersonal stuff that you've got to somehow establish relationships with people. For those kinds of things, it would also be good to establish the woman's stand-up. And a stand-up is literally that. Let's all meet in the lunchroom, 10 minutes We're going to go through the project status. So grab a cup of coffee, come over here. We're going to stand in the corner. We're going to go around the room and everybody's going to give me a 10 second update. Those work and those get people involved. And because each person is required to speak up, the way I always did these is tell me what you did yesterday. Tell me what you're doing today. Tell me what's in your way. And sometimes people would say yesterday I completed coding on project B. What I'm doing today is I'm going to meet with so-and-so and and we're going to work on Project C. Nothing is in my way. And that's how long it takes. But that means they're engaged and they're involved. And everyone in that group hears it. Defining the project team sometimes is a little tricky because you can't have 30 people in there. But the people who are involved and engaged at that point on that day during that sprint are the ones that you want to have in there. So that might be an approach. All right. Number two. It seems like everything needs to be done at least twice. Scrum is pretty good at highlighting this. What do you do if it just seems like everything? We're doing this again? Didn't work? <laughs> what What's going on? Are we talking about rework? Uh, yes. That's what sort of rework. Uh, there's a few reasons for, for this happening. One is competence of the people that you've got going on. The other is that people are spread too thin, that they're doing two or three or five things at once. And you know me and my myth of multitask. You have to be able to avoid that. Some of this is going to land in the purview of the project manager, some of it in the purview of the the team manager. This is what I need you to do. If you go back to what I just described, if you break it down in such simplistic terms as what are you doing today? Name one, maybe two things you're doing today. Then there can be a little bit more focus. Some of the complexity of this involves the fact that certain tasks, certain engineering tasks in some organizations, depending on what it is that you're doing, how you're set up, you may have to hand things off. So maybe you do a a piece of code, but you have no ability to test that code. So you have to hand it off to another team. Things like that do happen, but it shouldn't happen all the time, every day. The only explanation that I would have for that happening is a poorly defined technical specification of what it is you're trying to do. Or, and more horribly, an incompetent staff person who simply doesn't know what they're doing. These things do happen. But again, it should not be every task all the time or even a significant number of them. Speaks to the quality of, of your plan. And for having to redo or rework in code, it typically comes down to the technical spec, who's involved, in, and then who your staff actually is. How good are they? And what do you do in those situations? Let's say you're a project manager or anyone on the project team 
Well, it's going to depend on on what the problem is. It could be something like you need a different person working on that. Most of the organizations that I was in, we had sort of a hierarchy. So we had people who were principal engineers, people that had a ton of experience, often people who'd been with the company for a long time, people who really knew in depth specific parts of the code. They knew how it worked. They knew where its fail points were, that sort of thing. So I would hand those people the responsibility of putting together a technical specification. This is what code needs to be changed. This is what it needs to do. This is how you would test it. And then they'll pass that off to somebody that actually does that work. So maybe you need a better interaction between them. It could be a bigger problem, and that is that you simply lack the technical expertise on your team to be doing the things that you're tasked with doing. That's a whole different problem that has to do with who who the staff is that's on your team. And I thank goodness never been in a situation where I didn't have skilled people, but I certainly had some who were better than others. So when I would assign specific tasks, I would make sure that I thought about that. Who Who is the best? This is really complicated. This is in a piece of code that's really old. It's fragile. This is in an area that should be pretty straightforward. This is a simple chain and you assign based on that. So this is more of that. Let's back up a step and put some of the responsibility on the management people, the folks that should know who their team players are and where their strengths and weaknesses are. There's no simple answer to that question. This is one of those where I would say, eh, it depends. But I think what you're saying is you need to diagnose it. If you have a rework problem, if you have things being done two and three times before it's done right, you need to figure out why. You do. And I think those are the some of the things that you look at. You could also have that same sort of an issue at a, at a higher level. You could have problems where if we go back to that model, the antagonism model between product and engineering, it could be that you've got functional specs that are useless. Maybe the problem is not with your engineering stuff. Maybe it's it's either with the people that are coming up with the functional specs or the way they're developing or the way they're presenting. It should always come down to the same process. What is happening? Why is this happening? And is it happening because of the specific technical details of it or the people that are involved? Or is there a process in here? We got lots of processes. You do A and then B and then C. They're not always the best. There might be some keys there. But it's going to have to come back down to the people who are the most responsible, meaning the management, people who are the most experienced, hopefully, same same people to management. And you dig into these to try and prevent it from happening again. On the far end of this, at the very end of this project, there's that phase we talked about, closure. One of the things that you do at the end is you go back and you talk about this. We had all this rework in this project that's unusual. Why did it happen this time? What sorts of things led to that? And in this meeting are all the people that were impacted. So the engineering staff, the QA staff, product, and everybody says, this is what I saw. And then hopefully from that, you come up with some pointers to what caused the problem. And then the next time around, you can improve that. You use different people. Maybe there's a process you streamline or eliminate or add. Maybe there is a technical weakness that you've got. And I need to hire some people that are stronger in this particular technology. Got it. Okay, you ready for the last one? Fire away. Uh, This one's a little bit more difficult to explain, but it often comes up in my experience in situations where you're upgrading a system. You're taking some old system and installing something new. It might be from the same vendor or a completely different vendor, but somehow the criteria for success ends up being full parity with the old system. And this can come up right from the start, or it can be in the middle. It can be as simple as in the old system, I had a button that did this. I need a button to do that, or I can't do this. 
What do you do in a situation where suddenly you're responsible for doing everything the old system could do in a brand new, completely different system? Not everyone does everything the same way. I worked for a number of years with a healthcare provider that provided start to finish products. In other words, admission to billing for big hospitals, clinical systems. And the thing I learned almost immediately when I went into this line of work is that every single hospital in the United States, every single clinic in the United States, and every single doctor's office in the United States has some unique process that they go through that no one else uses. So when you try and provide a product that works for everyone, you immediately run into exactly the problem that you just described. And that is, I can't predict every single workflow in every single environment 100% of the time. For that specific case that you described, there has to be a whole another level of work up front long before you get to the project state where you have a new version of this thing that you're going to install and you're working with that vendor specific to your particular workflows and why that button that you need must be on the screen for you. And they must come up with a way to provide you with either that button or an alternative process to get you the same information. If you don't do that, you have the problem you just described. This represents a degree of difficulty that many companies cannot support and that they don't expect this to happen to them. But let me tell you, it exists in every universe you can think of. Having been in an environment where we had all of these clinical customers, each having their own unique needs, we learned that the way you approach this is up front, you start talking to the people that are involved in those workflows and you create these project teams. Sometimes these go on for 18 months. I've got a new version of this particular part of the product that we're going to install and we're going to demo this to you and you're going to point out all the things that don't work and then we're going to figure out ways to give you either alternative access to that same information and show you how that works or we're going to customize some component of this specific to you. We did that a thousand times, but only because we as the vendor understood that this was the problem. The people on your end describing the situation that you had, you're thinking about other things. You're using this as a tool. So you don't think about that ahead of time. The fact that you did not think about it ahead of time, the fact that the vendor did not come to you and say, by the way, be forewarned, that's on them. How do you approach this? It's imperative that you contact the customer and say, new version coming out, we should talk as a company where you're using that software, you need to get together with them and you need to listen to the things that have changed and you need to understand ahead of time, this is going to impact. If you don't do that, you're just going to be reactive. So you do have a choice here, proactive, react. Either way, you're going to have to solve the problem the same way. The question really is, can I form an organization that is proactive enough that I reach out to the vendor and I say, we're looking at your new version of this coming out. We want to get together and talk about the changes going to read every release note you've got so I can understand specifically what's going to be different. We're going to look at things that maybe we had customized, even internally, stuff that we did ourselves, and we're going to talk to you about that. That's part of a project plan that you have to go through. You have to invest in enough expertise and effort to get to the point that you understand what the changes are. This is an unavoidable thing that must happen. No quick, easy answer to this. I think I'm speaking for a lot of folks on what some people call the business side when I say sometimes you're asked to comment 
on a new system and they drop in front of you a list of requirements or user stories or a whole bunch of documentation and they ask you what's missing and which is an incredibly difficult thing to do until you are actually in the project. You're actually starting to see the way things look and feel and work and process. And then suddenly you're like, oh, didn't you know? <laughs> you have to also do this in sequence. Yeah. You can't just do it in any order or you know something like that. But I like your thought that it could take 18 months. I think both because that company that I was working for at the time had been around for a long time. And that particular outfit had started out as a function of the United States government early on. It was defunded with an administration change, turned into a private company and got a client and then a second client and started building client-specific stuff. There was a, a very long years and years and years of painful experience in doing this. If you're Microsoft and you've got how many million people are using Word or Excel, every time I pull up a new version of that, I don't know how it works. It's on me to figure it out. And it's on me to figure out, is this in any way backward compatible? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. I feel your pain. I wish there was, a, I could say, oh, that's easy. All you got to do is A, B, and C. It's just not that simple. You as the customer should have some expectations that the vendor is at least going to accommodate you, but not always. I've just been on both ends of this and there's no easy way to do it. I think what you described is I feel your pain completely. You get a 700 page document of changes and release notes and user notes. and You can't hope to understand everything. Well, Denny, we've wandered through a number of different signs that a project is failing. It was intentionally a bit disjointed, but in the next episode, we're going to take all of these examples and all of this learning and distill it into something that people can use in their day-to-day -day lives to understand whether or not their project is starting to go off the rails. I'm totally on board with this because I've seen projects succeed and I know that there are ways that you can do it. And I know that there are a lot of parameters that measure success and failure that we should probably discuss. It will be good to get into that. We've probably both got enough experience so we can offer some concrete, useful suggestions. Thank you, Denny. I appreciate your perspective. Talk to you soon.